0: Welcome to BioCentury this week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by. Iman Fishburne,
1: Editor in Chief.
2: Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor.
1: Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. And
3: Karen Koch Tesman, Senior Editor.
0: On today's pod, Amgen's $28 billion takeout of Horizon, capping a busy few days punctuated by data, 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 and then some. We'll talk about Biocentury's analysis of novel drug targets at ASH. And will ASH be the watershed moment for IL-18? Plus, we'll dig into the latest in the field of CERDs, including data from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Stephen. I know you are a bit under the weather. We might hear a cough or two, but (laughs) you just had to crawl out of bed when you saw the news today. Uh, From Amgen, what does this deal do for the company?
2: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, Well, you know, first off, I was actually going to start with the on the Horizon side. I mean, it's just very quickly. So the price for this deal is essentially just shy of Horizon's all-time sort of high. So I think it's a pretty good outcome for Horizon investors in that they get you know an exit sort of near the top of where Horizon was at its peak, and it comes at a time when you know the stock was off forty percent essentially between the start of the year and sort of the end of October. So it's kind of been on on a difficult run this year. I think for them it's a good outcome. When it comes to Amgen, though, this is really at a time when Amgen has been struggling a bit with their sales. Three Q twenty two sales were flat. Um, They've had some setbacks in their oncology pipeline, and push into oncology really hasn't materialized in terms of generating, you know, real strong growth drivers for the company. So, you know, this is kind of a return to, you know, you might say, return to one of their roots in sort of the inflammation and autoimmune space, where Enbrel for the longest time has been one of their best-selling drugs.
4: Stephen, there's a lot to unpack in this, so let's just start with some of the stuff on the Amgen side, where you know they're not one of the like super busy partnering or m a farmers they've used up a lot of powder be it dry or wet on this one right <laughs> uh, um maybe talk a little bit about that and does it mean if sure. you're a, if you're another farmer out there don't go looking to amgen they've kind of uh, haven't got a whole lot left but what do you think about that
2: yeah you're right i mean obviously this is far and away their largest deal you're right didn't to say that you know we don't really think of amgen as a very busy acquirer although you know lately they have actually been been doing quite a few deals i mean You'll recall just in August, they've spent $3.7 billion on chemocentrics, which actually sort of pairs quite nicely with Horizon And that uh, the chemocentrics acquisition gave them a very early, recently approved ANCA vasculitis program, also an inflammation drug. So I think you can see a lot of synergy between those two. And they also had a couple of other acquisitions as well. Five Prime last year, Taneo Bio, which was an earlier stage acquisition. But so I think recently... Amgen has been on, I guess, a bit of a, maybe a, a mini buying spree, you might say.
4: But let's just go back actually to that chemocentric synergy, because, you know, we were talking before the call. One thing I think we should remind people is of your very good Argenix story, where Argenix had kind of looked to the commercialization operation of Horizon as a sort of model that they wanted to follow. That's right. And, you know, is there an idea that you know, this Golden them hills that basically the commercialization plan for Horizon could synergize or give them a template for their chemocentrics acquisition. Is that what you're thinking?
2: Yeah, I think so, especially in the way, so when they acquired chemocentrics, I mean, that drug had only done, I think in its first, first sort of real quarter, it had only done about 5 million in sales. And so there was, you know, some eyebrows raised, you're basically buying a company for a a drug that's done $5 million in sales for $3.7 What's what's going on here? And at the time, you know, Amgen was saying that we think that this drug in our hands, in our, you know, commercial infrastructure, and when you add on sort of the, the label expansions that can be done, can be a much bigger drug than could have been, you know, done by chemocentrics alone. And obviously, I, I think you can just look at the price, right? I mean, Horizon, Horizon overall has done, you know, a pretty fantastic job, you know, launching Tepeza and, and some of the, the other products that they have in their in their portfolio. But I think Amgen thinks that they can sort of ramp that up even more and really drive that growth even further. And sort of on top of, you know, the chemocentrics acquisition, I think the other thing it pairs quite well with is Amgen just launched Tezspir, which is a new drug for severe asthma that I think also sort of fits into this inflammation pathway. So now they're pairing the Horizon portfolio with a couple newly launched drugs that all kind of fit into this same space. And so I think you can potentially give them some momentum there. But, you know, it also sort of comes on the back of some pretty, I think, bad news, some pretty big setbacks for them in their in their oncology portfolio, in particular around their KRAS inhibitor Lumacrass that had a couple of setbacks earlier this year. Lauren, I know that's something that you've covered pretty closely. Would you mind Filling us in a little bit on where those stand?
1: Yeah, I don't know that there have been major setbacks, but Amgen has sort of taken a leading clinical position in KRAS and KRAS inhibitors with Lumocras and in bispecifics. And in both cases, I don't think it's been the um, oncology success story that they were hoping for with the KRAS inhibitors. This was a great scientific achievement, but when it comes to the impact on patients and the durability, you know, they're just not using this drug for that long. And the sales have been a little bit disappointing. Um, we saw last week the first big combination data for a KRAS inhibitor and a PD-1 from Mirati, which is a different program. But this was supposed to be one of the big combinations for this class of drugs. And so far, it doesn't seem to be really much of a benefit in combining these two mechanisms. So I think the future is undetermined for, for Lumacras and for this oncology business that they're trying to move into.
2: Yeah, and I think that was the major for you know from an investor perspective, having that combination data and potentially even being able to hopefully move into earlier lines into frontline therapy in combination was really where investors thought you could see that major growth for Lumacrass coming, and that just seems quite unlikely now, really. And so, what investors thought was going to be a major driver is no longer so potentially, and and so I think that's where this Horizon sort of portfolio kind of then slots in.
0: All right, and you can. Dig further into Stephen's thoughts on biocentropy.com. He has a piece on our website. I'd like to get to some of these medical meetings. There's just been uh, so much data out of ASH that's really been interesting. I feel like a few years ago, ASH was a little sleepier, but there's just been a lot of interesting stuff this year. I know, Lauren, we've been talking a bit about that leading into the conference. You led Biosentry's analysis into new targets at the American Society of Hematology meeting, and you found 29 in the conference abstracts. What stood out to you among them?
1: So, we've been doing this every year for a few years, looking for new targets in the abstracts, and it's getting harder to find new ones. But what stood out this year is that AML seems to be an area of innovation in terms of finding new targets, which Every year, AML is sort of the most covered indication at these conferences, but there seems to be sort of a switch with the amount of innovation that's going into this indication. Um, There are a bunch of drugs that work pretty well. We see a lot of different clinical trials going on, but there's a lot of new modality work, new mechanism work in this indication to try to solve something that's been very hard to treat for a long time. Some of these targets are for CAR T-cell therapies, which have been moving away from the B-cell malignancies and into different kinds of hematological cancers and solid tumors. And so AML is becoming a big indication there, although there are some pretty big challenges with that indication too. So
4: Lauren, that's extremely interesting. And as you say, we've seen AML just be this huge area, at least at this conference, How much is AML sort of a proving ground for companies with new technologies or even new targets? I mean, I suppose they're AML specific, but is this an area that's sort of, one that is particularly given to, let's try this new format of CAR T or let's try this new type of CAR T or other format of cell therapy or whatever other modality. Why is AML so important?
1: Well, so it hasn't been a testing ground. So it's been very hard to find new targets for this indication because AML is a disease affecting the bone marrow. And so there are very few targets that are selectively expressed on the AML cells and not on the bone marrow cells. So you know, with B-cell cancers, it's okay to target something that's also expressed on B-cells. You can get rid of a patient's B-cells and then they'll come back after a short period of time. But you can't really safely eliminate someone's bone marrow by by hitting a target that is not selective. So this has been a really hard indication in terms of um, uh, new targets and new innovation. And um, I think that's why this is so interesting because there are, companies are getting very creative at how they can hit a target that's not selective for the cancerous cells in the bone marrow and do that in a safe way.
3: Lauren, I thought it was pretty interesting in your analysis how looking at the mechanisms that are being targeted by these new targets. And in the AML bucket in particular, there's a lot of transcriptional epigenetic regulator type targets from a lot of academic groups. So uh, really interesting additions to the arsenal.
0: All righty, let's turn to IL-18. Not a new target, but it's still a small field. Karen, you took a look at this last week. What did you find?
3: Well caveat, of course, it's a small study, but a a striking one coming out of Carl June's lab at UPenn showing that CAR T cells engineered to secrete IL-18 and manufactured through a faster process, which we'll get to in a bit, had a striking 100% overall response rate in a subset of patients who most of them had previously failed uh, marketed CAR T therapy. And that is a growing area of unmet need. And so uh, it was exciting for the point of view of that patient population. And also from the point of view of the cytokine, which is, you know, we've been seeing tons of activity in the sort of cytokines for cancer space. Obviously, IL-2, pretty crowded. Um, IL-12 is an area that people have been kind of chiseling away at for a long time. And IL-18 has been a, a more relatively quiet area in the bucket of what is called Th1 cytokines, cytokines that drive uh, sort of cytotoxic immune responses. But this could be the type of data that starts to germinate more interest in IL-18 programs. And and it also comes at a time where there's been some discoveries around IL-18 biology, specifically from the lab of Aaron Ring, who founded Simcha Therapeutics, about how the uh, IL-18 binding protein acts as a decoy, and uh, that could explain why previous IL-18 therapies haven't done so well and offer a new path forward. So it's potentially a moment where we might start to see more commercial programs heading in that direction. Um, I will note that there is uh, at least one company with an IL-18 secreting CAR-T in development that is Utelex out of Korea. They didn't uh, respond to my request for comment, but it seemed like a a good moment to dive into not only what this study showed, but also what we're seeing about IL-18 biology for cancer.
0: All right. Thanks for that, Karen. Your analysis is up on biocentury.com. Moving quickly today with so much happening with all these medical meetings, One place where uh, a lot is happening is with surge. The past two years have seen six or so milestones in oral selective estrogen receptor degrader development. AstraZeneca had some data at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Lauren, what stood out for you?
1: Well, I think these data stood out because this was sort of a, a step change in efficacy from an oral surge. So people have been trying to make an oral formulation of this class of drug for 20 years since Fulvestrant was approved. Um, Fulvestrant works relatively well. It's just a very large intramuscular injection, actually two intramuscular injections that um, you know are really painful and patients don't want to take them. So this has been a goal for a long time. And finding a therapy that can achieve the same level of efficacy when delivered orally without causing toxicity has just been a huge challenge. And so the progress over the last couple of years has been really exciting. Menorini has a PDUFA date for l next year. I think it's in February. We're very near an oral third on the market. The issue with a lot of these is that proving efficacy over Fulvestrant has been difficult. And that's kind of the requirement. Even though there's this clear administration benefit, companies still have to prove that there are statistically significant efficacy benefits to these oral formulations. So Menorini was able to see about a month improvement in the overall population, which was significant because this is a population that doesn't see long progression-free survival. But the data from AstraZeneca at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference were very encouraging. This was about 7.7 months of progression-free survival compared with about 3.7 months for full so Lauren, uh, one of the key points that you
4: emphasised in the story that I thought was really interesting, maybe you can walk us through that, was how clinical design and sometimes making difficult decisions was, was really important in the latest data from AstraZeneca. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so something striking about all of the oral CIRD data that we've seen is that there is so much variability that it's really hard to actually compare the efficacy results from any of these trials, which is always difficult. But in this case, it's just there is so much variability in the inclusion criteria from the trials, the controls that are used, and even in the endpoints that have been used. What AstraZeneca has done in their trial is go head-to-head against Fulvestrin. So most of, actually all of these other studies have just used physician's choice of endocrine therapy for the control, which is sometimes fulvestrant, but could also be a selective estrogen receptor modulator or an aromatase inhibitor. So, here they're actually directly trying to answer the question of whether this oral CERD is more effective than the intramuscularly injected version. Another interesting thing that they did with this study was um, they actually included a low percentage of patients who have been treated with a CDK inhibitor before, a CDK46 inhibitor. In the US, That's standard of care now in the first line. These are being used in the second line endocrine therapy setting. So the trial doesn't necessarily reflect efficacy that you would see overall in the U.S. population now, but they did do a subgroup analysis where they are able to see how it worked in that population, which was CDK experienced. And they saw a similar efficacy benefit.
0: All right. And Lauren, your deep dive analysis of the third space up on biocentury.com, of course. More ash coverage coming. And this Thursday, Simone's conversation with GSK's Tony Wood on the BioCentury show. So lots to tuck into. Appreciate you listening and hope everyone is enjoying all this great data and deal making as we wind up 2022. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music, will have its second concert of the season this Wednesday. Head to kendallsquareorchestra.org for details. Thanks for tuning in.